Hello, everybody. It's Father Brian Sullivan. Before we get into this next sermon, I just wanted to wish everybody who is listening to this, wherever you may be, just a very Merry Christmas. Our Savior is born to us. God is with us. And as you know, with Christmas falling on a Monday, it's been a hectic few days for us parish priests with everything back to back with Sunday Masses and, of course, with all of the Christmas Masses. But we do it all for the baby Jesus, for love of him. And so please let us keep one another in prayer as we now quickly approach the new year. The following home you're about to hear was given at the 10 a.m. Mass Christmas morning. Hope you enjoy. God bless. Well, good Christmas morning to everybody. Uh, praise the Lord. I'm sure everybody has all opened your presents. Everybody's stuffed. Everyone is tired. And especially I want to give thanks to many of our, our choir members, our volunteers here at the parish, deacon, and uh, everyone else has been, it's been, it's been a rough couple days with the calendar, with Christmas and Sunday coming back to back and everything leading up to this day. We were at Christmas, a midnight mass this morning, so many of us just got a couple hours of sleep. And so I want to praise God for all the many people that helped the parish run. Well, we don't mind at all, do we, Deacon? We don't mind at all. Why? Everything for the baby Jesus, amen? amen. The baby Jesus is born. And in all of the readings today, the readings that we heard from the first, the second reading, and especially this beautiful, powerful gospel, probably one of the most famous gospel in all of Christianity, and I don't say that hyperbolically, because all of Christianity, the meaning of Christianity, the power of Christianity, the mystery, is all summed up in these few lines. And the key word in all of the readings leading up to Christmas, humility. Let this word just echo in our minds and our hearts, especially now as we, especially this time of year, it's all about family, presence, and all of the beautiful, great things, what it means to, to be a family, a Christian family especially. But let that word resound, humility, all throughout this entire season as we begin now Christmas. Christmas doesn't end today, by the way, for us Catholics. It just begins. It's just the beginning. So listen to that word again, humility, humility, humility. We first witnessed this great, beauty, beautiful virtue of humility this last Monday. So as part of our preparation for Christmas, we have a beautiful tradition here in our parish. It's called an Advent penance service. Essentially what an Advent penance service is that in those leading weeks to this beautiful day of Christmas, we have an opportunity to go to confession. And we had about, originally 10 priests scheduled to come, and sadly, two at the last minute, they got sick with this bug that's going around everywhere. Everyone's getting sick, and sadly took out two of our priests, so we had eight of the planned 10. And many of you were there, because I recognize many of your faces. We had over... 300 people for confessions that night. Poor Father Jeff Henry, if you know Father Henry from Travis Air Force Base, he was, he was 
His, station, his confession station was in the cry room, as we call it. So if you're ever sad in the parish, the homily goes too long, or just go into the cry room. That's, that's where everybody goes if they're upset. Kids and adults. So we don't discriminate against age in that cry room. <laughs> Poor Father Jeff Henry. You know how many hours Father Jeff Henry was in that room? See, I told you, you hear that baby cry? That's actually an adult, by the way. Father Henry was in there for three hours straight. But it was a beautiful sight to see all 300 of you here. And many of you waited for three hours to go to confession. Why it was so beautiful, especially coming from perspective of a priest, was that all 300 of you who showed up on last Monday, you were living out the virtue of humility. Because if you think about it, examine the psychology of somebody who goes to confession, especially in a huge community penance service. You eventually, you walk into the church, and everybody sees your face, and we all look at each other, we're like, oh, I wonder what you did. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, I don't think people think about that. Rather, I think the, what people mostly think is, wow, you're broken too. You struggle with something? Oftentimes, when we try to share the good news as the first reading, the glad tidings as the first reading describes with people, we try to invite them to church. So oftentimes, if you ever heard it, it says, Father, I can't go to church. Oh, if you've only knew what I've done in my life. Or the, or the funny line sometimes people say, oh, Father, you don't want me to that church because the moment I dip my finger in the holy water font, the church is going to collapse on your head or the water is going to boil. Let me tell you, your sins aren't that spectacular. No matter what you've done, no matter how heinous or ugly, And when all those 300 people came, it was living out the beauty of this great mystery that I need God. You see, that's the second part of the psychology of all 300 of those people that arrived on that Monday penance service. Said, I need God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was present to God in the beginning. Through Him all things came into being, and apart from Him nothing came to be. Whatever came to be in Him found life, life for the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. The introduction to the beginning of the Gospel of John. This Gospel, which we just heard and proclaimed, 
is the oldest example of the lasting and earlier survival of a gospel text. So the earliest piece of gospel text that we have comes from this gospel. It's called Papyrus P52. This is a technical archaeological term. This, it's a fragment of a pocket gospel. It's a, it's a little gospel that you put in your pocket. And it comes from the first half of the, of the second century. So it's nearly 1,800 years old. It's just a piece of a fragment of this gospel. And how we know it was a piece of a fragment, because, because you can, archaeologists can study it and measure it, how big it is. And so we know that whoever had this made was a rich man. Match, which man or woman? Somebody of means. Because in order to have a pocket gospel, first of all, you had to have the means to have it made. Because it was expensive to have paper, and it was expensive to write it down, and so it was expensive to create a book. And the earliest fragment, you can imagine, an early Christian in the second century having this gospel in his pocket. Again, why? Because this person who owns that gospel, the earliest surviving gospel text we have as Christians, understood the implication. To understand this gospel, we must read it through a first century lens. Because remember, as Catholics, to properly read the Bible, we must first understand the context of it. That's how we read the Bible as Catholics. And so, as you read the beginning of the Gospel of John, listen, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the darkness had not overcome the light. If you're a first century Jew, what do you immediately think of? So remember, read this gospel as a first century Jew. And you're hearing the themes. In the beginning, light in the darkness. What is the first early Old Testament text will your mind immediately link to? I hear many of you whispering it. Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 is the first thing that will pop into the mind the first time when you read this gospel. I want to read you Genesis chapter 1. Listen now, again. This is all in the background. In the beginning. There it is, beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. Beginning. Darkness. Now notice what happens next. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Genesis chapter 1. Go to the Gospel of John. Hear the two again in conjunction. In the beginning was the Word. All things came to him. The light shines in the darkness. Do you see now the first century Jew was linking the two? So what we have here as these two narratives go in parallel 
of Genesis, the first creation of the world. What is meant to call to mind in the reading of the Gospel of John is now a new creation. There is a new creative order that has just been begun here and started. Because as we all know, what culminates in the beginning of Genesis? What happens? So the final culmination of God's crowning glory as he creates the world in in seven days, his crowning creature is who? You. (laughs) Me. Humanity is the crown of creation. But what happened to the crowning jewel? Sin enters into the world, destroying us. If you ever wondered why your back hurts, why we ail with sickness, why we lose our hair and wrinkles come, and our loved ones pass, if you ever wondered why that happens, Part of the effects of the fall of humanity. Genesis, creation. And then now, as part of God's plan, He sets upon a new creation. The gospel begins. The real light which gives light to every man, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through him the world was made. Do you see now Christ creating anew, taking what was destroyed and tainted, now renewing it, uplifting it to its rightful place. But as Christ, the light, comes into the world, guess how the world received him. The world did not know him, and he came to his own, but they did not accept him. Why do we reject Jesus? Why do we reject Christianity? It's a great question, isn't it? The story I just laid out for you that we're we're God's crowning achievements, or that the baby Jesus now comes, that God comes with us, among us, it's almost too good to be true, isn't it? And all of us are all suspicious whenever something is too good to be true. Have you ever bought a car and a salesman pitches something to you? Or, or a, a recruiter of some type. You know, I, I, my previous parish had a parishioner who owned a, a series of car dealerships. He owned a whole bunch of Hummer dealerships, wildly successful. And he told me inside stories of the, of the car salesman trade. And you know what he called the salesmen, the, the people that you see in the parking lot waiting for you, you know, when you drive into the parking lot and they just all of a sudden appear? <laughs> he used to call his salesmen the sales team Cupids. Cupids. He said, he would tell his, his team, he says, your job is that whoever drives onto that lot 
You are called and your goal is to make them fall in love with that car they can't afford. <laughs> to promise the world to them. And they all have these techniques and strategies because you, you, you push on one end or you reject another end, they're, they're trained to, to keep approaching you from different angles because they know there's, there's, there's a way to get to us. They're called to be Cupid, so they promise the world, and immediately we're all suspicious whenever something's too good to be true. But what if, for the first time in human history, the great promise of God is true, is overwhelmingly true, that the reason why now the world does not understand him is because if you think about it, all the people that we seem to be great and mighty in the world, all those that we deem successful or look up to, they're always the powerful. They're always the great ones, the beautiful ones, the ones with the most stuff. But then notice this about Jesus. He says, as, as, as the gospel continues, he says, those that did accept our Lord and he empowered to become children of God, now newly created, said there is no carnal desire, nor by man's willing it. Meaning, there's no worldly taint of success in this Jesus. Because he's not powerful. He doesn't have a mighty army. He doesn't have all the trappings of, of success in the eyes of the world. Then all of a sudden, he says, this same Jesus now becomes flesh and dwells among us. The mystery and the, profound, the profundity of this mystery is that God becomes one of us. Why? You know, the early church, when they reflected upon Satan and like, why did he fall? Why did he trick Adam and Eve in Genesis? They said that the one virtue that the devil cannot understand, and he never anticipated this, because the devil never anticipated the coming of Jesus, is that God would humble himself and become a little baby. In the devil's wildly high intellect, he cannot even comprehend the humility of God. Why? My brothers and sisters, this is why Christianity is utterly amazing. He does all of this for us. Pure love. That's it. Pure love. And if Jesus is willing to do that, I want you to ponder the question. Well, who am I then? If God is willing to give me his son, what does that say about me? I'm not the richest, the most successful. I don't have the greatest title. I don't have the much, as much money. Jesus, why? I'm not even that good looking. Jesus, why are you going to do this for me? Love is the mystery 
and the power of Christmas. And all 300 of those people that came on Monday, by their very life, by your presence, said, I need him.